Well, hello and welcome to the Unofficial Unreal Engine Podcast, where we talk about all things Unreal and also giving an F about your 3D printer. As always, we're your hosts. My name is Alex, and this is uh, not Jacob. Who are you? Well, you may remember me from such uh, podcasts as the podcast we're on now. Uh, I'm Vikas Reddy, founder and CEO of Light Twist. Uh, was on this podcast about, I don't know, 10 episodes ago. What was the... What was the last, last episode? But uh, yeah, like hundred years ago. Yes, yeah. yes, <laughs> yeah. of course. Because uh, um, right, I mean, in the the infinite history of this podcast, you were one of our early guests. Yes, yes. Welcome yeah. back. Thank you for being here. Um, right, because Jacob, of course, is so burned out from GDC. We will have to <laughs> await his full report um, in a future episode. But yes, thank you so much for being here to fill in. Yeah. and uh, and be a guest host for tonight. We're, we're yeah, I'm super pumped to be here, and uh, yeah, we're excited to be powering this uh, this virtual studio experience. Uh, we're still using some alpha software here, but hopefully, it uh, does not crash. I got to say, the the interface of this new alpha software looks fantastic. It's really coming along, and it's been a joy and a pleasure to watch it develop over the past few months. Thanks. Yeah, appreciate it. Yeah, shout out to the Lightwist team that's been doing like crazy crazy work to to pull this off. And uh, yeah, we've got a lot lot more to go, but it's getting there. Yeah. So I thought for today's episode, um, we could do kind of a deep dive into South by Southwest. And it might surprise some people to know that Unreal Engine had anything to do with South by Southwest, but we can go over that and maybe touch on just a smattering of GDC things before Jacob does a, a deeper dive into them uh, when yeah. he returns. Does that sound good? That sounds that sounds awesome. Yeah, maybe maybe we'll Great. start with uh you know, just a just a highlight. Uh we'll touch on some of the best uh maybe some of the most interesting let's call it unreal or game engine related concepts or, or things that you saw at South by. Cause um, it seems mm -hmm. like that's, that's happening more and more at South by now is a lot more spatial computing game engine stuff uh, than it used to. Yeah. For those who don't know, South by of course started just as a music festival and over the years they've added other tracks. And so now they have the interactive track, which includes a lot of XR content, which is pretty cool. And I do appreciate you saying just game engine related content, because if we tried to just do things that are on real engine, I'm going to put my foot in my mouth because there are <laughs> quite a few experiences where I'm, I'm just not sure. I'm just not sure if it was made in Godot or, um, uh, what Cry Engine or or Unreal or Unity? So we'll just we'll just talk about the cool ones. <laughs> yeah, sounds awesome. So yeah, what were, what were some of your favorites? Yeah, so let's start with one I saw by um, Amaze VR. If that company sounds familiar to people, it's because they got a lot of press for doing uh, Megan Thee Stallion Enter the Hottieverse, which also toured across AMC theaters, and that was a uh, combination experience of seeing uh, stereoscopic. Uh, 3D video inside of a CG Unreal Engine environment. And so they had a new experience at South by this year. I can't even remember the name of it, but it was a K-pop band. And it was, bar none, the best 3D video experience I've ever had in VR. I can't explain how sharp it was. Yeah, it sounds like, uh, it, so was it, was it a, it was like a 360 uh, not, not fully 3, I mean, I haven't seen anyone do that yet, like a full 3D <laughs> video kind of thing, but it was like a 360 stereo experience, essentially. Yeah. Um, and actually, I think one of the reasons they were able to crank the resolution so high was they, they actually kept it 180. They did kind of a clever effect where the the edges of the video kind of like dissolved away as though they were being pulled away by a black hole. And then everything in front of you in the 180 experience was incredibly sharp. And I think that was helped by the fact, well, a few things. Um, I got to chat with the team afterwards, and they have a totally custom camera rig. I thought they were maybe using like the Canon fisheye dual lenses. Nope, not those. Um, something that I think they said starts at 18K, not for price, the, the resolution. And then they scale it down to something like six or 7K to be viewable in the Quest. But also the, the camera experience is always moving. And so sometimes you're very close to the performers and they look super sharp. Now, because what, what do you think tends to happen sometimes to people if they're uh, being moved in VR against their will? Yeah, I mean, like, I would expect to be throwing up, basically, because that's the usual, yeah. like, you get dragged around. So yeah, like, did that is that what did you throw up? No, I did not throw up. In fact, I couldn't believe how comfortable it was. And I saw a number of people go through this experience who said, you know, usually I can't stand a, a 360 read off 
video. Three DOF, by the way, stands for three degrees of freedom. I know you know that. I want to make sure our audience knows that. And that just means all you can do is rotate your head. Um, you can't actually move around. And a lot of people who went through this experience said that felt totally comfortable to me, which seems completely against the grain of what wisdom yeah. <laughs> has taught us over these years, where if you're moving in VR and you're not controlling that movement, you are probably going to feel ill. So there's some kind of black magic going on in how they're moving the camera and the fact that it feels totally comfortable and gives you this very dynamic music video experience on these live performers in a CG Unreal Engine environment. That's That sounds awesome. Yeah, I mean, I would, yeah. And, and it was, what uh, what headset was that on? It was on a, a MetaQuest, just a standard Quest 2. Um, yeah, nice. and uh, it felt really good. Um, the experience, they did two music videos. They were both filmed in one take. There were no cuts. It was just wow. one continuous movement. I understand they filmed it something like five or six times, but then they literally just picked the best one and composited it all together. And the performers are looking at you the whole time. You feel very, very seen. Um, and I just found it incredibly compelling, engaging, and especially thinking about what the future of that might be with, you know, making that live, for example. I know they've already cut down on their production time significantly. Um, I think it only took them two weeks to go from having the raw video here to actually putting it inside uh, their experience. And so I think the, the Megan Thee Stallion one was much longer, like eight or 12 weeks. And if we keep following this trajectory, Eventually, I'm sure we'll get to the point where they'll be like, yeah, we can actually do this uh, pretty much live. Maybe there's like five or 10 second delay, which is also like what Twitch does and, and Vimeo. So um, that would be pretty cool. And then to have some kind of way to share that experience with other people, uh, because especially compared to something like, let's say, Horizon Venues, which I would not call a good video experience uh, or social one. Sorry. Uh, this was just on a completely other plane of existence. Nice. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> what else? Uh, what else caught your eye at uh, at South by? Yeah, uh, I'm embarrassed that I, I don't have the names of these things offhand, and I'm too lazy tonight to actually pull up the titles of everything. There was an experience by Target 3D, who's a, a really wonderful production studio out of London. I've um, been to their their studios before, and they were doing a live dance piece. They had literally, I know this was an Unreal Engine because they actually had the Unreal Engine editor pulled up. And it was a, a dual piece. Um, it was two performers. The one there in Austin was um, uh, had prosthetic limbs uh, for her legs and then was performing in, in this very amazing choreographed way with the other performer in London who may have also had prosthetic limbs. It was a little hard to tell from the video, but they're basically doing a live um, dance choreography session across the pond and the motion capture happening in Unreal, it wasn't just your standard like, oh, yes, now I'm going into different avatars. They actually had the avatars shifting into like, now I'm a, you know, a, a spider with too many limbs. And now I'm a like a blob yeah. of jello. And you were you still understood that their movements were dictating what was happening in Unreal Engine the whole time. But it was a really playful and interesting experiment with both how you could choreograph something for non-traditional uh, bodies, but also the the fact that it was happening across uh, these continents was also very, very cool. And there were a bunch of experiences at South by this year that I appreciated because they felt like they were going against the grain of what you would traditionally see in terms of just like, hey, we're taking a narrative and making it VR because we can. Uh, there's a piece called Town Square that I know won some awards at Venice last year. This was like little animatics all around you and you're watching like a couple thousand years of this civilization growing and dying all around you. And there's funny parts and tragic parts and horrifying parts. And um, it was all hand-drawn. And the actual artist who made the piece was there the whole time also sketching things out and putting them up on the wall. And uh, yeah, th that was a super, super cool team. Um, there was a piece that I actually get to claim like a tiny, tiny, tiny bit of helping out on. Uh, there's a gentleman there named Cameron who created a piece called Body of Mine, which also won a special award there. And he had reached out to me months ago when I started playing with um, using the MetaQuest Pro and Unreal Engine for uh, body capture and facial capture, because this experience is about um, gender dysphoria and feeling uncomfortable in your own body and understanding the trans experience better. And he was hmm. basically saying over Twitter, like, hey, Alex, we're, we're having some trouble here with like the motion capture and all that. Can you help us out? And I tried to give them some good pointers and, and tell them that I thought the experience they were building sounded phenomenal and I couldn't wait yeah. to see it. So it was such a pleasure to get to meet Cameron and his team um, at South by and do the experience, which I appreciated so much for one major reason that jumped out at me is it really leaned into the uncanny valley of doing motion capture that isn't perfect. 
because this was set up with a bunch of Vive trackers and like a Vive Pro Eye and some eye tracking and all that. And you yeah. s you're in a mirror the entire time. You're in an Unreal Engine environment. You're inside like a chest cavity and you're looking at a mirror of yourself. And oh, you're very aware the entire time that like, that's not me. Not only is that not me, but also my arm and my legs don't quite move the way that mine do. And so it's a little unsettling and a little uncomfortable. And they really leaned into that. And I think it made the experience all the more effective for like, oh, this is what it feels like to be uncomfortable in my own body. Yeah, that's fascinating. So it was like, uh, so you could, you would basically see like uh, different gender or different size, you know, like sort of essentially a different body than your own. And then giving you a chance to kind of experience that, uh, experience that, I guess, like, yeah, gender dysphoria or uh, body, body dysphoria. I'm not sure if I'm yeah, using yeah. that term properly, but yeah. I, I know, and I always confuse the words uh, dysphoria yeah. and dys dysmorphia. Uh, which that's is right, yeah, different. dysmorphia, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's um, fascinating. Yeah, and, and what was very cool was, you know, it's all these different metahumans, and of course, we all know with metahumans, it's very easy to create a lot of variations and still use the same rigging and the same skeletal structure to uh, make it, you know, even on, I think this had a relatively low budget, to still be able to show all these different characters. And there was this other element where you would touch different parts of your body and then you would hear stories of, of different trans individuals talking about their experience with, you know, having breasts or having a period or having um, their hair or, or something about them that just felt completely wrong for who they fundamentally feel like who they are. And so, you know, a lot of people push back on the idea of VR being a, a quote unquote empathy machine, but I thought this actually went a very long way toward helping me, me as an individual, understand the trans experience a little better. And so for that, I applaud Cameron and, and his whole team. And uh, it was really wonderful to see something like that, that, that used VR really well. That's awesome. So yeah, what's, what was, uh, what else was on your list? Yeah. Um, Felix and Paul, uh, only Paul, I, I'd never met them before. Paul, by the way, has a very funny email, which I'll tell you off mic. Uh, it's not, it's not, <laughs> Paul at felixandpaul.com. Um, but Paul was there showing their uh, Space Explorers experience, which is stu stuff they filmed with their cameras up in the International Space Station. There's something out in San Francisco right now called, um, ooh, not Interstellar. It's called, I'm blanking on the name of it, but it's basically a big arena scale VR experience where you walk around a life-size you know, virtual model of the International Space Station and then you kind of dip your head into different places where you get to see those videos, which, by the way, are available for free um, inside mm. the Oculus store. And so uh, they were, he was showing that experience. And then also they had a Magic Leap 2 experience that apparently they started working on back on Magic Leap 1. It kind of got shelved during the pandemic. And this was a very, very cool storybook experience. And it's totally a coincidence. I have a book with me right now, but hopefully I can demonstrate that it was so cool that you had your Magic Leap glasses on. And then as you opened up the book, it was kind of like a pop-up book, but with, you know, with these 3D models, these animations, um, there was physics. So if you'd start to turn the book, like some things would like roll off the pages. And I also really appreciated that from a docent perspective, it'd be very easy to know how much longer someone has in the experience because not only, you know, can you see like what page they're on, but also it's useful because you can do the pay, you can do the, the, the experience at your own pace. There's a lot of VR experiences that I want to dip into for a couple minutes. And then I'm kind of like, I got it. And I don't need to stay in there. And I feel bad if I'm taking up a slot that someone else would like to be in. So this experience really allowed me to go like page one, page two, like just kind of glance at everything going on in there. And instead of taking up a full, you know, 25 minutes, I took up like three or four minutes and I saw what was on every page and I got a pretty good, pretty good feeling for it without, you know, getting the whole narrative. But I, I thought it was a really wonderful take on, you know, how to do that. That's awesome. That's, and each each page was like a different uh, different sort of VR experience as part of the like tied together with the narrative. Yeah, and and to be clear, AR because magically, but yeah, so oh, it was yeah, showing yeah, sorry, yeah, content yeah. on the pages, and you had this physical book that you were using to to move the story along, yeah. and there were like you know little fiducial markers or, or QR codes on there to tell the headset what to put on each page. Um, so that was very cool. And um, yeah, I just thought it was a, a lovely storytelling mechanism. And, you know, they weren't even in the, the exhibit hall. They were just doing this outside in the uh, the hallway. Um, and by the way, this is a pretty good bridge to, you know, it was such a funny coincidence that they were there. And I got to talk to Pierre, who's also on the Felix and Paul team, about how they did their experience in um, 
San Francisco, because in addition to South by Southwest and speaking on two panels, which we'll cover in a little bit, I was primarily in Austin to work on this crazy large VR arena scale Unreal Engine experience setup. And we were using the Felix and Paul experience in San Francisco um, primarily to uh, as a precedent, as a precedent to say, like, how can you get a lot of people into VR into one experience? Now, what's different yeah. about this custom VR arena facility that we were part of building in Austin, which is still ongoing now. And I feel very bad that I've left two of my uh, uh, team members in Austin since March 6th. They're still there. <laughs> we're almost in April now, uh, but they're doing a great job continuing to build out this system from a hardware, software, uh, storytelling perspective, all that. But in San Francisco, the Felix and Paul experience uses something called anti-latency for tracking, which is all, all these IR markers on the ceiling. And it basically creates a big, unique fiducial marker where as the headset looks around with this little radio on top, it's able to know where it is, what its coordinates should be in space because uh, it's so unique and it can say, ah, yes, I, I'm right here. And that would have worked great. We set it all up in a temporary space. We were referencing what Felix and Paul had done and it would have been fine, except the location that we ultimately moved all this to is basically in a big party tent and the party tent uh sways in the wind it's up on a bit of a cliff and because what do you think happens when uh the coordinate system for your vr experience is swaying back and forth uh i'm gonna i'm gonna guess uh throwing up a little bit there you would be right yes the entire world <laughs> shakes around you even if you're completely still so we kind of had to abandon that and then we had to figure out okay what else could we use can we use uh spatial anchors or shared spatial anchors from meta uh no not really because meta not only uh has kind of abandoned their efforts to make desktop experiences work they also don't do a great job um keeping up with unreal engine uh, so most of the Unreal Engine things we wanted to use were in an Oculus fork of like 4.27. Um, <laughs> spatial anchors were like super glitchy and, and jittery. And um, as much as it would have been great to be able to have this big arena scale experience like that, that would have, you know, not worked. Um, so ultimately where we where we are now is we're using OptiTrack, which is traditionally a motion capture system. And that motion <laughs> capture system is being used to try to track where all these headsets are in the space. But um here's the thing one thing we really do like about the MetaQuest experience especially in an unreal engine scene that is running using airlink on rtx 4090s with triple bounced ray tracing which sounds insane you should not be doing that in vr um the frame rate is is pretty low but the reprojection that happens with uh space warp and time warp from meta actually yeah. really makes it a comfortable experience and so we didn't want optitrack or anti-latency or any other system telling the headset where to be every frame. Instead, we try to do like a little check-in and be like, hey, God, where am I right now? And then we kind of want to just get like a little nudge back to our, our proper coordinates in this multiplayer experience. So you see everyone else in the correct place too and you're not bumping into them. But then we want to let the, the meta, you know, software take over and let us just kind of walk organically yeah. in this giant there space. There, just to clarify a bit, maybe for for the listeners, like what you're describing yeah. is like there's the the OptiTrack system you're using for es essentially sort of like uh, like global positioning, uh, like world positioning, and then uh, oh, as a way to also like ensure that you're not getting drift and you're able to coordinate positions between all the different you know people. But the but then using the you know still relying on the Quest tracking for essentially like low latency real time local tracking so you're just kind of getting like uh all the built-in sort of time warp yeah like reprojection that kind of stuff is that is that right yeah you got it and the thing is we we found surprisingly that in the space that's been built there you can you know what the test we would do the simple one is we pull up airlink pull up the menu make sure the menu is like at a corner on a wall or something like that we'd walk around the whole space takes like a couple minutes to get all the way back to where we'd start and we'd say oh hey there hasn't been that much drift. It's like a couple inches off and that's totally livable, even though there are some you know, physical elements in the space that we need to align with the virtual world. But right. because there can be some drift, we do want that check-in. We wanna say, hey, OptiTrack, where should I be? And get those yeah. little nudges. The problem is OptiTrack, like many of these systems, Vicon and others, are designed for tracking things in motion. And if you hold still and you say like, hey, where am I? 
it's not yeah. going to give you the best reading. It's going to be a little bit jittery. But also, if you try to do it while you're in motion, you end up with like a little bit of latency where the the coordinates haven't quite caught up with where you are, and it's going to think mm -hmm. you're like a few inches behind you. So these systems really are designed to be on all the time. And we're flouting the authority of them by saying like, hey, we only <laughs> want to ask you where we are every so often. So it's an ongoing, interesting, challenging problem because you know, yeah. there's a few things here that are a little bit unprecedented. Normally people wouldn't be doing this arena scale experience with Airlink, with all these dedicated Nighthawk routers that we're using. They would just be, you know, in the headsets doing some kind of shared multiplayer system standalone. Um, the Airlink system is tricky. The fact that we are trying to, to, you know, only check in with these systems once in a while, instead of doing like a sensor fusion setup, which is again, something you normally do with OptiTrack. Uh, where you're kind of mixing the the data you're getting live from OptiTrack with the data you're getting live from the Quest. That's unusual. Uh, ray tracing for any kind of VR is unusual. And the fact that we have so much of it in here is kind of crazy. So yeah. I, I bring all this up, first of all, because it's an Unreal Engine project and has some interesting challenges. But also, like, you're going to ask me, like, hey, tell me more things you saw at South by Southwest. And we're yeah. almost done. Like, we're almost done with the actual <laughs> things that I saw at South by because I did spend so much time in Austin for the 10 days I was there on site, wow, you know, working on everything uh, over there. Because we arrived in Austin um, a few days early, March 6th, and then South By didn't start till March 10th. And the original thought was like, we'll be done before South By, and then we can all go off and, and just enjoy South by Southwest. And best laid plans of mice and men, you know, I still have two <laughs> team members who were there a month later, you know, cranking things out and this trying to get from 98% done to 99% done to 100% done. Yeah. And this is like, this is like a challenge of, uh, you know, we'll say, one of the interesting aspects of spatial computing, computer vision, like anything that really interfaces with the real world is you, there's a lot of stuff where like, if you're programming something where it's like, you're, it's a video game, it's only running on a desktop. That's already a hard problem. You know, that's, yeah. that's challenging. There's a lot of 3d, but then uh, when you have to like, start to take into like, we're into uh, account real world conditions of like, what does the environment look like? And all of this things, it's like, it, it starts to get pretty crazy. So yeah, I've been, uh, yeah, it's it's a it's it's something you have to kind of account for, but it's hard to account for. So totally get why your team members are still there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and there's this question of like, where's your ground truth reference? Like, what do you use as your baseline information? And you would think that yeah. when you have all these systems in place, that that would help you triangulate between them. But the truth is that like. I mean, if we were using all three systems, that might be okay because we could do like a use the two out of three that are closest. But you actually can't have anti latency and off track and, you know, meta tracking on at the same time. So instead, we end yeah. up with this thing where if we're using two systems, we're just getting very different data from both. And there's not a very clear way to say, hey, this one's probably correct. Lean more towards this one. So it, yeah. yeah, it's an interesting problem. Still unsolved, but it's we've we've done some really cool 3D printing um, with uh, custom head mount things. We also printed a very cool thing that that goes into the headphone jack of the MetaQuest Pro and covers the power button because people all the time will accidentally press the power button and turn off the headset as they're putting it on. We've put a stop on that. So that was like a nice little clever solution. And um, yeah, we've done some fun testing of things like like spatial ops. Um, some other things that like use shared spatial anchors, uh, Space Pirate Arena, uh, just to see how other things perform in a space that large. But it's it does feel like we're in kind of new territory. That's great. That's awesome. All right. So you mentioned there's one last thing that you saw before we. I do. I am really excited to hear about your talks because and uh, you know <laughs> I think that's. Uh, but but let's see, let's hear about the last thing that you saw that it was that was a highlight. Yeah, I've been holding this because I, this is my reminder for it. So this is a little uh, putter that you can put a, a Quest controller into. And uh, I was invited to a walkabout mini golf breakfast. Walkabout mini golf is a lovely little game on Quest that has all these adorable worlds, different IP stuff from like Mist and 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and, and all sorts of other things. And they had a big announcement about doing a collaboration with Meow Wolf and, and having both a virtual course that they've helped design and like a physical ARG kind of version of it as well. And so to actually go around a real golf course that had some nods toward the walkabout mini golf game um, was a really nice, you know, fusion of like the virtual becoming real and the whole team was there and they were lovely and they were serving super delicious breakfast tacos. I'm sure a lot nice. of people in our audience already know that the food in Austin is incredible. Um, <laughs> yeah, so that was great. Yeah. 
Um, awesome. The 3D printer thing, by the way, before I forget, I just want to mention that uh, some of these late nights were fun. Um, we ended up asking ChatGPT some questions to help us with Unreal. That was cool. But then we started yeah. to ask it things like, hey, ChatGPT, can you give us a wrap about why virtual reality and uh, 3D printers are so cool? And it came up with a pretty good one that was like, you know, um, you can be in places you don't, you, you could never even imagine. And, you know, I can go to Paris and I can go over <laughs> here and everyone will think I'm over there. And it was like a very cute little rhyme. And then uh, Marshall on my team said something like, okay, now can you do it like Eminem or maybe Jay-Z yeah. or something like that? And then it started again with like, I don't give an F about your 3D printer. And then like <laughs> it immediately rewinded. I was like, no, I can't, can't process. Uh, which I thought was kind of amusing that it, it stopped itself, but immediately went from like, can you make this cool thing? Yeah, I can make this cool thing to being like, I don't care about your cool thing. Yeah. <laughs> That's, That's awesome. Fun. Yeah. Um, so talks. Uh, so I'm yeah. giving on two panels. One was about XR and live events, theater. And one was about XR and like architecture and places and virtual spaces. And nice. they were completely different panels and both lovely. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I, initiated both of these panels during the proposal phase last year. And I specifically thought like, I bet March is going to be a really busy month for me. I don't want to have to do a bunch of preparation for South by Southwest. Let's yeah. do panels because I can just yep. show up and talk and it'll be easy. No, because yep. everyone on both of those panels is super smart and ambitious. And they all had <laughs> great ideas for like all the ways the panels could be prepared for maximum efficacy. Um, the first one, the theater one was on the XR track. This was with um, Emmy Schwab and Stephanie Riggs and Louise LaSalle. And we covered, you know, this wide gambit about what is live, what is liveness in, in a virtual experience, in a real experience, what happens when you merge them, what makes an AR experience compelling versus a VR experience. And we had this whole thing planned out with Emmy as well, pretending that they couldn't attend the show and doing a quote unquote pre-recorded video saying, you know, hey, here's the, the prompts I just wanted to give, and then actually showing up and being actually live. And then there were technical difficulties that made it so we couldn't play the video. So then Emmy was like off stage, <laughs> pretending that they weren't actually there, but still doing kind of a similar thing. And it all kind of worked because again, the whole discussion was like how theater and live events, it's a, a tight wire act. And part of the fun of it is if things do go wrong, how do people respond to it going wrong, both the audience and the performers. And um, yeah. it was a very, very cool discussion where we had like some slides and hit on particular points about case studies that we had worked on, case studies from other cool folks like uh, like Jill's Job and I was talking about their piece, uh, La Comedie Virtuelle, that I saw in, virtually in Venice a few years ago. And, uh, and that was just a very cool, wide ranging discussion about, yeah, compelling yeah. virtual performances. Yeah, and like, were there, were there anything like, uh, were there any highlights where you were like, from that where you're like, you're like, wow, it's a really interesting way. You know, obviously, obviously you've been in the space for a long time with, with having you. And so, uh, like, were there any like nuggets that came out of that where you're like, wow, it's a really interesting way to think about, you know, live performance in this like XR world. Um, yeah. What, what were some of those sort of nuggets of, uh, of insight or wisdom? Yeah. Uh, Louisa is someone that I, I only met recently. Um, uh, she was working at zero space as their like principal creative technologist for a while. And she has like five degrees across like Denmark and NYU and ITP and all this um, about, you know, awesome. body ownership and, and, uh, and yeah, empathy and VR and what makes something really feel exciting and live. And uh, some of the work she was discussing was, was really phenomenal. And I, I, feel like I shouldn't even try to describe it because I'm going to mess it up. But I, I do want to tell people that both of the panels I was on are actually available kind of in podcast form. You can go to the links for those panel discussions on the South by South website. I don't think you need to have like a badge or anything like that. And you can play it back and you can hear all the, the smart things Louisa and Stephanie and uh, Emmy said without me butchering them through my own paraphrasing based on, on memories from a, a few weeks ago. Nice. And did you... Uh... Did you apply the classic panel strategy to make it more interesting of uh, starting an argument with anyone? You know, it's funny. Both both of my panel groups, we talked so much about how it's so boring when everyone uh, agrees with each other on the same thing. So yes, yeah. we did intentionally try to set up moments of conflict. And, you know, yeah. this question of like, is this really live? Lend yeah. itself very naturally to um, me, for example, talking about doing uh, The Orchard, this piece with Mikhail Baryshnikov we did last summer and how, you know, so much of the the 
things that people saw in the Unreal Engine experience were not live. They were pre-recorded, but there was still a yeah. sense of liveness because everyone was experiencing it at the same time. There was co-presence. And yes, we tried to position certain discussions like that where someone could say like, well, here's the reasons that's not live. And one of us could say, well, here's the reasons it is. And I thought it was a very healthy, respectful debate. Um, yeah, yeah. Full disclosure, we, we did rehearse. And so I think we had some idea of what the other person was going to say. It was a bit of a performance, but I think it went off very well. Nice. And yeah. So, yeah, and so uh, you mentioned you were on another panel, uh, the, uh, like, I guess it was, was that virtual reality and architecture? Yeah, it was virtual reality and architecture and home and placemaking. Um, this was with Andrea Yonkojikaru of Numina uh, out of Germany. Uh, they do real and virtual architecture. This was with um, Caroline Running Wolf. I've known her and her husband, uh, Michael, for a long time. They do incredible advocacy for um, native populations. And then uh, Jessica Outlaw, who I've actually studied for years because she's done these amazing studies on virtual uh, spaces and the psychology of architecture and things like how people feel very similarly in virtual spaces as real spaces. And there's certain cues you can take from that when you design virtual spaces, but there's of course things you want to take advantage of when you're not bound by the laws of physics inside these virtual spaces. And I'll be honest, I'll, I'll reveal something here. The main reason I kicked off this panel discussion was I'm friends with Jessica and we've hung out before and I'm friends with Andrea. We hung out in London. And then I found out when Andrea and I were both speaking in London that her and Jessica very good friends in totally different time zones and they'd never gotten to meet each other. And I thought, boy, wouldn't it be nice if I could like find a way to like allow them to meet each other? And so, yeah. yes. So I, I thought like, let's try to do a panel discussion together when we brought Caroline on and then we all got to, you know, meet each other, hang out and, and of course have this wonderful discussion, which uh, was lovely. Also, we ended up opening the panel discussion with a land acknowledgement, um, which was incredible and really powerful. And I've never been physically present for those. Like usually for land acknowledgements, I hear that kind of thing like on a podcast or something like that. And yeah. the, the performance and the, the statement um, that was that kicked off our whole panel was really powerful. And I think it set the tone for a much more, I'm going to say somber and serious discussion um, about real and virtual places and what makes them meaningful compared to, you know, the theater one, which was a little bit more lighthearted and playful. Um, and the way that we, we set this up, by the way, again, I had to do some homework. We all had two images that we brought with us. We brought an image of a real place that was meaningful to us and a virtual place that was meaningful for us. And uh, for the virtual place, for example, Jessica has spent a lot of time in alt space. And so she gave this beautiful and kind of heartbreaking, you know, um, obituary for alt space closing down because that happened like that morning oh, yeah, that's right. uh, before yeah. our panel. So that was very, very effective. And um, great questions from the audience. And I just, I was very impressed by how deep that discussion got, especially on this, this question of like, can a virtual space that you've designed in Unreal Engine, for example, be as meaningful to you as mm -hmm. an actual physical space, which is very interesting because, because like, yeah, what are we, what are we in right now? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah, I mean, it's we're in a bit of a virtual like, space. Yeah, yeah, that that is interesting because yeah, just, there's certain things that obviously, at least with current technology, you, you can't get like, like you can't touch, uh, you can't sort of, uh, you can't you know spend too much time in it. Like there's some there's some sort of uh, it's it's a, it's an interesting trade off. Yeah, that's a that's a really interesting question because I'm sort of thinking about it now and I'm like, well, on the one hand, there's things you just can't do yet. Maybe we'll get there with VR in a in a virtual sort of space, but. On the flip side, there are things you can do in a virtual space, you know, you know, in a way that's not really, you know, like you said, bound by the laws of physics. Like you could, you could do sort of some of the things that inspire awe or wonder. You could, you know, play on nostalgia in, in a certain way that like maybe it's not possible with like a physical space. But yeah, it's, that's really, that's really interesting. I'm curious. Yeah. Well, what were people's thoughts there? Like what was the, what were the sort of like arguments around that topic? Yeah, I mean, it was just a really healthy debate about, and, and I say us on the panel, but then also everyone outside um, who who spoke for a long time with us afterwards about, you know, what what are the guidelines? What are the guidelines for making a space compelling? Um, yeah. When should you make something feel familiar? We talked a lot about things like cognitive load for, you mm -hmm. know, how hard it is to actually like process something that feels completely new. If you just shoot someone into a virtual world and it's totally... <laughs> 
abstract space or let's do the polar opposite you're suddenly just in the middle of like a dance club and there's a thousand people around you um jessica i'll steal a line from her in one of her blogs where she said it's so weird when people just drop you into the middle of a social environment um and then you have to get your bearings and figure out what the rules are and where the people are and like the closest thing to that in the real world is if you've been like kidnapped and then someone pulls the bag (laughs) off your head and you're suddenly like in a warehouse and you're trying to process all that so like it's kind of like that whenever someone spawns you there yeah. Are you doing some really awesome slash terrible drugs? I guess. Yeah. You're just like, oh, right. Either one. I just yeah, woke up. It's a rave. Or terrible drugs. <laughs> yeah. Oh, amazing. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, just the discussions about the, the thing that interests me the most is like, when should we be designing spaces that take full advantage of what you can do in the digital medium entirely virtually? Yeah. And when do you want something to feel familiar and remind people of home or childhood or other spaces they've been to, or, you know, actually a a real digital twin of a a place that people will never actually get to visit, but now you're providing that service of letting them see that. Because I think uh, there's a good analogy to be made here with like film and the fact that in the early days of film, you know, we didn't have the cinematography language yet for cuts and wide shots and close-ups and montage and all that and so you know there was a certain way to just watch a film a lot of times in a single long take shout out again to something like amaze vr which can do that very very well um but then over time we did start to learn the literacy of of that cinematic language and now we can watch a a movie like uh, like mad max fury road for example and we can understand it pretty well even though there's a thousand things happening in all these cuts versus if you were to show someone from 1910 mad max fury road they would be very confused and not just because of the subject matter of the movie but just because they wouldn't know how to deal with understanding all those cuts and so i think with something like virtual spaces and virtual architecture and honestly i'll tie this back to like virtual theater and virtual live events right now we need to give people these anchors of the familiar so that it makes sense to them yeah but over time i want to believe we can venture more and more into the things that are only possible in these virtual environments and and really you know do some really outlandish things that actually will get to that point where there's not much cognitive load to that and people can just yeah. jump right in and experience it and have a great time. Yeah, there's there's some maybe there's some analogies to sort of the uh the way uh you know in the early days of of mobile design there's mm-hmm. uh you know especially Apple like leaned heavily into skeuomorphism because they're yeah. they're trying to sort of give familiar, you know, like have a sense of familiarity because you are already doing something pretty new which is like hey, you have this like supercomputer you know in your pocket and you know it can access the internet and all this stuff and so they had that early on and then like over yeah because i wonder you know could you have shipped the current something like the current flat design let's call it which i have my gripes with back when (laughs) mobile first launched and i think i think maybe the answer is it would have been really confusing because people are just starting to learn like gestures and swiping and like obviously like the tech board people would figure it out but like but now that like they've got, you know, people that have enough experience with it, now it's like, okay, we can jump into this new type of design, you know, whether you like it or not, um, it's it's functional at least, even though you're, you know, people because people have had 10 plus years to kind of train up on it. Um, on these like multi-touch and sort of these these concepts. And so maybe that same thing will apply in, you know, VR and uh, you know, even XR where you'll start to, we'll start to like get used to certain things like, oh yeah, it makes sense to do like this certain gesture to pull up this thing or um, everyone's used to like, hey, you got to do a quick setup thing when you first put on a headset because it's got to learn its environment or something. Um, but yeah, that'll be, that'll be fascinating to see. Yeah, I, those are great examples. And I'm just really looking forward to more exploration there because I, I do feel like, you know, pretty quickly VR, a lot of things were making people feel sick. And so very quickly, people are like guidelines, things to do, things not to do. And those were good. But some of those rules got established a little too quickly. And I don't know yeah. how many of them should be foundational. Again, I'll bring up Amaze VR. People say never move the camera without someone's permission. Generally yeah. good guideline. There are examples like this where it's doing a phenomenal job of actually, you know, making you feel like you're in a sixth off experience, even though you're not. And it actually feels very comfortable. So, um, you know, oh, I always think of these things more like guidelines than actual rules to, to quote a, a famous Pirates of the Caribbean movie. <laughs> That's awesome. All right. Well, uh, yeah, it sounds like an awesome roundup of, of South by I'm, I'm actually really sad that I didn't make it. I was, I was planning on being there, but, uh, sadly some, uh, some sickness and family uh, stuff. So next year for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
the other thing I was thinking too, as we were discussing like virtual spaces is it's so different when you meet someone in the real world, like at South by Southwest, who you've never met before or only interacted with through Twitter or even like through a Zoom video. Um, like before you and I actually met in person, I yeah, don't yeah. think we'd ever had like an embodied spatial experience with each other. No, no, and that's true. For the people that I have interacted with in VR chat, in alt space, in in Unreal Engine multiplayer experience, um, that feels very different. Like there's something about getting a sense of how someone like holds themselves, their posture, um, eye contact that um, ah. I think makes people feel much more naturally comfortable with each other when they meet in the real world. And so I, I had the most profound version of that experience, finally meeting a bunch of members of the Ferryman Collective. And this is a group that came out of similar places to, to me on the VR theater side, but they have taken this, this vision that they have for the future of virtual theater and run with it. And they're cranking out a bunch of content. And they were doing a piece called Finding Willie at South by Southwest this year, which was a collaboration with the team uh, Gyoi Immersive, who were kind of my shepherds when I was in Korea back in October. So that was very cool. But um, I'd already, of course, seen the people in Korea in real life and then have since seen them in virtual reality. But the Ferryman Collective, <laughs> so people like Stephen Butchko and um, Deirdre Lyons and Witten Frank and uh, Braden Roy, these are all people who I've spent a lot of time with in virtual environments, mostly seeing them as performers. Um, my son, who's seven years old, by the way, loves 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 Deirdre he saw her a bunch of times perform in the Tempest and the under presents and the way that relationship developed over time was really profound and so just to be able to like meet her for example in person and like thank her face to face for like what an impact she's had on my, my oldest child uh was really really cool and there, the experience they were doing there was also really neat it was in VR chat um but something I'm learning and I, I found this talking to a few people who had any kind of live experience going there is that there is a profound need for anyone who's trying to do live events um, or theatrical events or even concerts to a certain degree to have uh, an easy to use platform, some kind of uh, easy way to actually create these shows. Um, and mm. I talked about this a little bit in my GDC talk last year um, that, you know, the social platforms people are using for these things like VR chat, there's not really uh, a major Unreal Engine social platform except for maybe Helios. But they're not, I mean, I, we can say Fortnite, Fortnite, but Fortnite yeah, yeah. won't let you That's create your one. own yeah concert yes um and yeah. so what what i would love to be more involved with and I, I keep telling people this is i want to help build a platform that really caters itself toward putting on these kinds of events and hmm. provides the right kind of hierarchy because if you're running a show you want to be able to dictate so much about the rules of what can and can't happen there and yeah, yeah. generally social platforms are trying to say like we're all equal here man where it's a it's a democracy and yeah, and yeah. Like, you can't mute me unless unless i'm doing something really terrible but you know right. if you're putting on a show like yeah you do want to be able to mute the whole audience sometimes and and be like hey yeah. we got performers talking right now um so right, anyway right. just a, a quick little detour to say like i i thought meeting the ferryman collective in person was amazing and i really want to give them an unreal engine platform for live events that's better than what they can do right now yeah. in VR chat. So I'm I'm putting that out as like a personal goal. And yeah, I hope it's awesome. talking again in six months or a year, I can say like, look, I've done it. Here it is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it seems that yeah, you're right. There there are some like there's certain like concepts there. And I mean frankly, even like even like payment, right? Like if you built in build in a way for people that are putting on those events to just, you know, get get money, uh collect collect payments for it, you know, whatever whatever that happens to be. Um, that'd be, I feel like that'd be, that'd be a big step. I haven't really seen that quite yet. There's a, there's that new Fortnite creator, you know, yeah. you can like build some stuff for Fortnite, but I don't know if that quite would let you, it doesn't really let what you do, what you're, you're describing just the, just the creation. Sorry. So great, great transition. I think we should talk a little bit about GDC, um, including the announcement of Fortnite creator, which I have been playing a little bit in, um, you did not attend GDC, right? I did not, sadly, no. So what, well, I'll start by asking you, what What did you catch from the GDC announcements and what, what struck you, including something like Fortnite Creator? I mean, I think that, yeah, that that stood out for sure. The, uh, I mean, obviously the, the Unreal Engine, uh, or, you know, like the epic uh, uh, reveals of some of the Unreal Engine, uh, I guess it would be from 5.2 and some of the stuff they're working on with generative AI. Um, mm -hmm. the, yeah. the demo they showed of the, uh, of like, Hey, here's like, I you know they seeded like a couple square meters of like a island, I guess, or whatever, and then yeah, the entire rest of it just filled in automatically. Like that's that was insane. Yeah, 
Yeah. Yeah. I, was, I mean, it was just, yeah, I guess, yeah, I don't even know if that's using sort of machine learning, but I would assume so. But um, it could be something more sort of procedural, as you mentioned. Um, and then the other, the other thing was the, um, the record feature or like the, the sort of post-process smoothed out uh, facial and like sort of body anime, I guess mostly facial animation uh, via, via live, uh, live, not, sorry, not live kits. Uh, <laughs> live link. What's it called? Live link. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Um, that was, that was pretty phenomenal. Like that, I mean, that's actually something that I would love to, I want to explore, you know, integrating the light twist someday uh, soon because um, yeah, just the, it looked, looked amazing. Like just, imagining that level of fidelity from just an iPhone for facial capture where it looks like, you know, it, it basically looks as good as let's say facial capture, like the best facial capture you could get like five years ago on, on anything. Right. Like um, it just looked, looked incredible. And so I see that being like a, a huge factor in, in helping like democratize this, this whole content creation uh, pipeline but you know what obviously for games but also just for just for video um so th those are two things that really stood out to me um really anything else i think i think those are the two main ones that uh, from the from the unreal engine specific stuff i should say yeah yeah the gdc announcements for unreal are always phenomenal and i found it terribly ironic that um last year was my very first time ever going to gdc and it was also uh, a year where epic games just like completely skipped it there were a few people there <laughs> but um not many at all and then i'm hearing about all the amazing parties that epic yeah. games is throwing at gdc and uh yeah unfortunately missed it all oh and i did mean to mention that uh there was a very small presence of unreal engine people at south by southwest who were on panels and whatnot and they actually hosted an epic games party that i was invited to and it sounds like amazing amazing people were there and unfortunately it was one of those like fomo things where there were too many things going on that night i ended up at a different <laughs> party and i it was a great party but like i'm like oh god it would have been so great to go to the epic games one so i think a, a good rule of thumb to the world and all of our listeners is if you have the opportunity to go to any event thrown by epic games go to an event thrown by epic games they're always phenomenal <laughs> yeah it's that's that sounds incredible yeah yeah i'm sad i missed that as well um yeah we'll see what else uh anything else that stood out to you at gdc yeah i mean I, i'll just roll out a little bit more some of the things you touched on so so metahuman animator uh looks amazing and i have to be a little careful about what i say about this because um i do have access to metahuman animator now uh as oh. a you know partner of epic games so I, i'm not going to comment on my personal experience using it but i do think i can comment on how i reacted to what i saw so seeing uh how quickly that video footage with like depth mapping and using lidar or whatever was able to be processed and and turned into something that looked far better than than really any of the metahuman animation I've seen so far, uh, which yeah. a lot of it does look good. You know, I, I thought that was incredible. And I'm involved with a number of pieces that are trying to be narrative pieces that work both um, in a live context as well as an on-demand context. And so this is perfect for that because let's take, for example, like our Christmas Carol show that we do every December. So we can do the live link version where it's all happening live and we're getting the best data we can from that. But yeah. what we can also do now is record all that and process yeah. it. And my understanding exactly. is there is like AI being used to, um, to like get oh, like yeah, the time sure. movement very correct. Like you can't do that yeah, live. Yeah. So that does take some processing. Um, there's a lot of stuff going on for the metahuman DNA to like match your face with the character there. And, and just the speed of all that. Like, I'm sure that will be live in probably knowing Epic like a year or two, but even just the the speed of processing that right now is really phenomenal. And I, yeah. I just can't believe how quickly insane. Epic has gone from like acquiring cubic motion and three lateral and merging that with their own digital humans team and cranking out these tools that aren't just tech demos. Like they're actually usable things for the common Unreal Engine user. And I, I love it. And it's free. Yeah. Like the fact that you can go onto MetaHuman dot unreal engine.com or something like that and access the cloud computer and build your own metahumans that way for no cost is is pretty amazing yeah the other the other uh you know one, one other thing i wanted to uh, you know call out that was kind of really interesting to me was uh the uh nvidia ceo uh jensen uh yeah uh brought up uh he said something interesting to me that was i was kind of surprised he would say this which was he had this thing of like every the statement of like every pixel will be generated, not rendered. No. Um, and I found that pretty interesting. I, I don't know if he, 
you know, obviously like of all the people in the world, he's probably one of the people that has like the best insight on this stuff because he's building literally the, you know, the picks and shovels of the AI game engine world um, with, you know, with, with uh, NVIDIA. And so, um, but that was, that was really fascinating to me because I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, uh, I could definitely see it getting there. Like essentially like, you know, there could be a future where, a lot of the um you could still have a game engine you know kind of under the hood doing some stuff but maybe the the sort of game engine objects all the way you know sort of taking that as input out to the final rendered pixels could be a generative layer like once that once that's running in real time um it's it's not crazy you know it's not crazy to me because it's yeah the quality is getting you know better and better on some of the offline sort of image-based stuff like mid-journey 5 is, is insanely good but um, yeah, I was curious what you thought of that. Cause that was, that was a really, it was, a, it was an interesting statement that I wouldn't have expected it to make. Um, but yeah, that was, that was interesting. Yeah. I, I mean, NVIDIA is such an interesting company for a lot of reasons. Like I think all the time about how they are actively trying to like help Unreal and Unity, and then also kind of compete with them in certain ways with their own like fork of yeah. Unreal Engine and their own, you know, Omniverse stuff. But also like what you're bringing up, it just reminds you that, nvidia kind of gets to play both sides of this battle because their graphics yeah. cards and their technology and their software kind of powers whoever whoever wins this you know like they're still yeah. going to come out ahead um which is kind of fascinating and so in some cases like they might put some of their other departments out of business <laughs> yeah yeah i'm sure there has to be precedent for that like god can you think of like yeah. some apple apple, apple does someone? that yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah, they yeah they're cannibalizing their older products for sure. And yeah, I think they yeah, I guess in their case they don't care as long as it's uh, if you know on the one side people are using CUDA, on the other side they're using DLS, you know, like different drivers for the for yeah. rendering and stuff in, in game engines. But uh, but it, but it definitely seems like there's this in general what I'm seeing is like this convergence of uh, render you know game engine type rendering and let's call it computer vision. So like Nerf is a good example where you're sort of seeing this like board, you're, you're applying uh, some of the same techniques of like graphics in some sense in reverse to, to reconstruct the scene um, in this sort of compressed sort of machine learning format. But, um, and some, and there's a bunch of different companies that are now working on porting those to Unreal where you're like, you render, mm -hmm. you know, you can render a Nerf in real time in Unreal. And yeah. then, and the same thing's happening with like, you know, I, I could see the same thing kind of happening with generative uh, AI as well, where you start to build these like, you know, there's this, there's, uh, there's this really interesting efforts around control nets, combining that with things like stable diffusion. So um, that's something that, you know, we're exploring at Light Twist is, uh, you know, what are some different ways you can use a game engine to kind of control something like these, you know, these generative, generative uh, AI, uh, you know, rendering systems essentially. And so, yeah, I'm just really interested to see how these things come together. Like, how do uh, things like Nerf get integrated into game engines and, and Unreal specifically, obviously, uh, and then same with generative stuff, because um, I have to imagine Epic's thinking about it, too. Yeah, I, I'm sure um, you have to. And that's also just a transition back into like the Fortnite creator thing. That's why some of these announcements are, are I think, giving us a lot of interesting clues for where Epic might be headed. Um, Fab yeah. was a really exciting announcement. So for those yeah, who don't yeah. know, this shout is like a new yeah. marketplace. Yeah, exactly. Shout out to Albin. I, I did a, a WebXR um, hackathon at the old Sketchfab offices um, years ago before they were acquired by nice. Epic. And on my team, just to, to shout it out, was uh, Thomas Van Bal, who also now has gained notoriety as the indie developer behind Cubism, which is a great VR puzzle game. But him and I made a, a, a WebXR experience that was actually kind of like an educational tool where you could very easily like have a teacher who's running the class and could call on people. And uh, we just tried to get like the basic environment of a, a well-functioning classroom working in WebXR. Anyways, um, Sketchfab, uh, Bridge from Quixel, um, the Unreal Engine Marketplace, uh, unifying all these things into like one place including like yeah. the ability to purchase assets, the ability to preview assets, the ability to drag and drop them directly into Unreal or the Unreal Engine Fortnite editor is is really exciting just in terms of the the ease of use here. And my benchmark for all this stuff is always like 
what does this enable my kids to do? Because uh, I'm always trying to get my kids involved in VR and Unreal Engine and creation. And, yeah. you know, a few weeks ago, I might have talked about it on the last podcast, like I was letting them design their own landscapes in Unreal Engine and showing them how to use like the ramp function and how to change their player pawn. So like now it's a driving game. Now it's a running character. Now it's VR. Um, nice. And to go from that to all of a sudden, like the tools in Unreal Engine Fortnite editor is night and day. Like I yeah. really had to soften the onboarding for them to do certain things in Unreal, but they picked up on some of the stuff in the Unreal Engine Fortnite editor so quick, especially once I showed them fab and like, hey, you can type in the thing you want, tree, rock, car, whatever. And here's all these things and you can just drag it into your environment and move it around. And then when we got to that point where it's like, cool, you know, kids, you've made this this volcano island that has like helicopters and cars and guards and uh, all these random 3D assets you got from the Internet. And now we're hitting publish and now we're going to go play this on our PlayStation 5. And yeah. the speed of which we're able to do that now, it's it's almost unthinkable for like the fact that we could be here like two years ago if i had seen the video of us doing this over the course of like 30 minutes i wouldn't believe that was possible it's it's really phenomenal that's that's amazing yeah it feels like uh yeah i think like our kids generations yeah it's gonna be like uh it's like a it's gonna be like an infinite creative playground it feels like uh like it'll be limited only by your imagination at that at that point yeah yeah. And by the way, I, I'm curious, since we're both fathers, like how, how yeah. are you approaching just the general, I want to say like technology side of everything? Like when do you decide yeah. like, yes, it's okay to engage with this passively or interactively or as a learning tool or in whatever context? Because you, of course, also yeah. have access to um, a lot of these tools and technologies. Yeah. I mean, my, my kids are pretty young. So they're, they're three and five right now. So they're a little bit young for yeah. like, you know, so I've, yeah, we've we've generally tried to limit them on like TV and and screen time in general, so they don't really have their own devices or anything like that yet. But yeah, I mean, it's something I've thought about. Like, I'm like, okay, at what point do we start to start to do that? I'm trying to trying to steer them more into creative things. Um, and so, like, yeah, I've had my oldest and uh, youngest even like help me with like, you know, just just play around with some like generative AI stuff. So I'll be like, hey, let's type in some That's prompts cool. for you know, mid journey or for uh, Dolly too. And just kind of like, uh, just, just kind of exploring there, but it's still, it's still early. Yeah. I think, I think I'll probably, uh, yeah. Unfortunately, I don't have any great, great advice there yet. Uh, maybe in a couple of years. Yeah. I mean, the thing I always find myself thinking about is just how normal this is going to feel to our kids in a way where it's still kind of baffling to yeah. us. Yeah. Um, the, the example I go to a lot is like our phones, I think are going to seem so, strange to especially the generation that comes you know in, in the next 20 years and yeah. maybe apple will be a big part of this i just heard that they like may or may not actually be releasing their headset uh or <laughs> announcing their headset in june maybe it's pushed back for the upteenth time but yeah. of course this notion that like if you got your iphone if you're walking down the street and there's a restaurant and you're like oh hey i wonder what that restaurant is you know like maybe the it's closed down and there's no menu on the door so you like google the restaurant and you're pulling up the menu and you're looking at reviews and you're yeah. doing all that on this tiny little screen in front of you but of course it's inevitable that pretty soon that will all be spatial it'll all be contextual you'll be able to walk yeah. down a street with some kind of ar glasses on and if they that if those glasses know that you want to see restaurant reviews and price and things like that you'll see it popping yeah. up on top of the facades of these different buildings. And so yeah. a couple of generations from now, the idea that we had to like look at this little black mirror in our hands to get that contextual information, that's gonna yeah. seem really crazy. And it's it's just interesting to yeah. try to view the world through our kids' eyes that way. <laughs> yeah, I think even like, even like, uh, you know, the, the one sort of way, you know, there's uh, this, this one concept of like things that super rich people do just kind of get like uh, commoditized and, gotten you know get get to a place where like regular people can access them often and so in some ways like i, I kind of think this uh you know if you think about like billionaires they've got like personal assistants right and so it's they're not yep. even they're not walking down the street even like even if they had an air headset like looking at reviews they've got like they're like hey here's the one <laughs> restaurant you should go to right and so yeah, i see i see right. something like that where it's like you get like uh mm. you get this like uh personalized like always on like hyper vigilant like watching your calendar knows where you are like obviously there's privacy concerns but like 
Um, someone's going to crack the code on that or probably a couple of different companies. And that's going to be a huge thing where you just, you have like, uh, you, yeah, it's like you get this, this, this personal agent that's even doing all this stuff on your behalf. And it's like, it's like, Hey, like, yeah, figure out a good time to meet up with this person or, um, that restaurant I went to last night was like, meh. So next time let's not do, <laughs> you know, whatever, you know, let's not do this type of cuisine on, on these days or something like that. Right. So yeah, it'll be, it'll be a fascinating future. And I, I'm really excited for how all this also plays into like creativity. Cause it, it, we're already seeing it now. And like, obviously it's something we're working on in one way at light twist, but a bunch of other companies are, but this, this world of like, yeah. Like at what point will a Hollywood film be made by a, you know, by a person in their basement, right? Like, like how, or, or at least like when, when will it be the equivalent sort of level of quality where you're like, okay, you made this video, you made this movie, it cost you, you know, a thousand bucks and it's like on par with like the, like the highest budget movie ever of like, you know, 10 years ago. Right. Um, yeah. And that's, it's, I don't, I, I see a pretty clear shot to how like, in, in the next 10 years, maybe probably five or less, maybe, maybe I'm even underestimating it. Could you make Jurassic Park with, uh, you know, for under a thousand dollars? Like probably. Sure. Well, you know, I don't have any uh, particular shout outs this week besides the the yeah. South by Southwest stuff, but Corridor yeah. Crew is really a YouTube channel. Everyone should be taking a look at because yeah, they're yeah. doing those kinds of experiments. I think one of the ones they did was literally let's try to recreate one of the scenes from Jurassic Park, like using, you know, whatever off the shelf tools we can grab. I think they used Unreal Engine for that. Um, yeah. So, you know, that kind of stuff combined with, yeah, exactly. Like chat GPT and the AI tools we have now. And, um, and also just like, I want to say the the people side of this is important too because it's not that people or kids are are smarter now they just have access to so many more resources than they did before so anyone yeah. can find the right youtube videos or resources to become a really talented vfx artist and you compound yeah. that with all these you know ai assisting uh systems and, and software pieces out there and like just what people can do is is really mind-blowing and i'm constantly baffled by the the creativity um, whenever I, I get to like the guest critic for universities at the end of the semester, there's always at least one student where I'm like, you're like 19 years old. How did you do this? Um, yeah. and, and I, I like that. I like that feeling of constantly being, uh, about to be obsolete. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, it's, it's great. It's a, it's an interesting field. Yeah. It's a, or it's an interesting time. It's like, these are, yeah, I kind of, I kind of consider the, uh, my, my, my sort of prediction is 2020 to 2050 is, uh, hardcore cyberpunk era and then hopefully we get sure. to star trek after that but we're gonna have to go through some utopia. some slight dystopia utopia battles i think <laughs> in the next 30 years probably yeah yeah hopefully we'll be on the the right side of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> awesome well uh yes yeah, as as always uh awesome to be on here and uh yeah thanks for the the recap on south by and um yeah just always always great to be here alex yeah, this is really fun. Um, because is there anything that you want to plug? Anything that's coming up, travel or events or stuff you want people to know about? No, nothing, nothing specific. Just uh, yeah, just uh, nothing, nothing. Where can people right find now. you? Oh yeah, yeah. I'm on uh, I'm on Twitter. Uh, probably way too much at Vikas Ready, <laughs> uh, or I'm at uh, Vikas at LightTwist.com. So yeah, if you're if you're looking for a virtual studio, if you're looking to experiment with some early early software. Um, always happy to uh, talk there, or even uh, you're a startup founder looking for some for some feedback, uh, especially if you're early on in your career. Like I'm always happy to help there too. So um, yeah, that's that's where you can find me. Yeah, Vikas has a huge wealth of knowledge, and I, I would encourage anyone uh, who wants to take him up on that offer, please do it, and you'll you'll be better for it. Um, I'm going to plug one thing that I didn't talk about it because it's not unreal. It actually is a Unity project, but we flew <laughs> right from Austin to Tennessee to film in 360 video and capture with depth kit volumetrically um, an incredible live show uh, called La Passion Segundo San Marco, which is like kind of the the Christ story as told from St. Mark's perspective, um, you don't need to be religious at all to appreciate how powerful this piece is. There's like a, a Latin fusion music 
thing going on and the percussion is incredible. The dancing is incredible. There's a capoeira dancer who we captured with Move AI just using, you know, an iPhone and a couple Android devices. Um, we did all these scans with, with Polycam and things like that. We, we captured this live event that only a couple hundred people actually saw live. Uh, we captured the dress rehearsal, two shows, and then a patch session where we could be like right up on stage, right up close to some of the performers. We also did digital scans of the performers, um, again, using things like Polycam and Luma AI. And now it is our responsibility to take this piece, which is done. These performers will never be together again and turn this into something that the rest of the world can appreciate. And we want it to be accessible. We want there to be a VR version. We want like a WebGL version, a YouTube version. And uh, I feel profoundly responsible now for for honoring um, what legitimately is one of the most powerful live performances I've seen in my life. <laughs> That's awesome. Congrats. Yeah, congrats on that. It sounds, sounds like an amazing thing. So I'll keep an eye out for that. Yeah, yeah, that's that's all my plug is like keep an eye out for that. I think we'll have at least like a trailer coming up soon. And um, and yeah, just shout out to the Gateway Chamber Orchestra and, and everyone who helped make this happen. And the only reason I, I'm lucky enough to be involved with it is I, I helped them secure a Google grant. And so as part of the Google grant, it's like they're doing the live show and then they want to expand the audiences and do all these other things. So um, this stuff is really exciting. And and I will say, because this is the Unreal Engine podcast, if Unreal Engine starts to have better um, volumetric capture capabilities, that mm. is going to allow us to do more of this kind of stuff inside of Unreal Engine. So maybe, maybe we'll see some progress there soon. <laughs> awesome. Cool. Okay. Um, thanks again, Mikas. This was a lot of fun. Yeah. Thanks as always to our producer, um, Alan Scott, who's making all the bells and whistles and knobs work behind the scenes. And uh, we hope everyone enjoyed this and we'll see you next time. Maybe I won't be here, but Jacob will be here. We'll, we'll start mixing it up more. This, yeah. We can do whatever we want with the show. It's going to be a good time. I'm going to put on my Jacob hat for a moment and remind you to like and subscribe, comment, download us on whatever platforms you can, share it with your friends. And there we go. Um, Jacob's much better at plugging the show than I am. <laughs> Hoorah. <laughs> so thanks, everyone. Have a good night. Bye-bye. Thank you. <laughs>